This is what's left of the last couple who did not attend our marriage conference. <laughs> Hi. My name's Pastor Jeremy. Welcome here. Um, as you can see, I like to do things that I think are fun and keep people guessing. I've, someone told me last week, actually one of our pastors, I had no idea where you were going with that. It's like, I'll take that as a compliment, I think. Good morning, welcome here. As you can see, we're talking about marriage right now in our church, and um, we've had a lot of things we can do to help. We have classes, we have conferences, we have examples, and today I want to really, as a whole, talk about the bottom line or the foundation of marriage. Last week we talked about the gospel and the union of Christ, and this week I want to talk about what it is that makes marriage sort of hold together and stick? What's the fundamental uniting element? So that's why I brought bones up here, because um, you have probably been familiar with a human skeleton, and this guy's got a little bit of a hitch in his giddy-up, but I think you will know what I mean. He um, is held together. There's a lot of important parts. There's a brain, there's a heart, there's the lungs, but at the end of the day, all of it's held together by this thing we call the spinal column that runs from uh, the brain all the way down, and what it does, I'm told by Dr. Leslie Schutz, that uh, it's a really cool thing that God made because it, um, the backbone protects the spinal column. So this thing that's transferring all the absolutely necessary information and nerves and stuff from head to toes is flexible. So, for example, I can bend f- forward, I can do lateral, I can do side to side or whatever they are. I can do all these different movements while at the same time still protecting that core or that essence. But as you know and perhaps as you've experienced, if anything in here gets tweaked, if, if one of these nerves gets pinched or there's a growth that gets things out of alignment or all of a sudden it's crunched or something's pushing on it or it's broken everything sort of falls apart. I mean, it's just not working. You can't move. In fact, some people can't move at all if this thing is severed. And so, um, what I'm saying is that when God designed the human creature, He encapsulated it, or within it, this beautiful system to sort of protect and also hold everything together. And that's what the backbone does. It, It protects, it holds us together, it allows us to function. Well, In the same way as the backbone functions for the human body, so too the covenant functions for the marriage. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this via the analogy is that a covenant is a system, here's a definition for you, a system that God has put in place to provide a framework of how we operate. It connects and holds us together. It does for the relationship what the backbone does for the body. And like the backbone, if the marriage covenant is compromised, if, it is, if something is pushing on it, if, if, if it's severed, if it's broken, all of a sudden the relationship begins to fall apart. For those of us who are married and even those who aren't, you know a marriage often starts with these things we call vows. You know, will you do this and will you do that for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse? And it's 
what it is, is if, if you think about it like in a child's mind, as we saw on Friday night at the marriage conference, it sounds like this sort of romantic, you know, ooey-gooey thing that you just do because that's what we already do. But in reality, this covenant, this promise, this pledge, this oath is the very foundation of the thing itself. And so we begin our marriages with a covenant. So what I'm going to say to you today is just like your backbone... Protect your covenant. The covenant is the most important part of your marriage. And therefore, whatever you do, here's the theme. And we'll flesh this out as we go through it. Don't let anything crowd out the covenant. Don't let anything compromise your marriage covenant. Now, when we talk about covenants, I want to, before I get into my structure for today, I just want to sort of define it because I know it's not a word we use a lot. We don't walk around saying covenant. You may hear words like contracts and stuff like that. But if you look in the Bible, what you'll actually see is there's really two different kinds of covenants. There's the human covenant that either individuals make to individuals or groups make to groups or corporations to corporations or nations to nation states. Or there's also the divine covenant. And so what what happens then is within those agreements, there can be conditions or there may not be conditions. Most of the time in a human contract, there are conditions. If you do this, then this happens. If you don't do this, then this happens. If I do this, here's the terms of our agreement. This is what frames things in. Here's the conditions under which we're going to operate. But sometimes, when you look at the Old Testament, and here's one of the big, and the New Testament, one of the big contrasts between human covenants and divine covenants is that a divine covenant, like in Abraham's covenant with God, they're often unconditional. All they are is the greater coming to the lesser and saying, I'm going to do this. This is what I'm going to do for you, Abraham. I'm going to multiply your descendants. I'm going to bless you. And those who bless you will be blessed. And those who be cursed or curse you will be cursed. It's completely unconditional. It's not dependent upon him. But then you move down the chain a little bit and you see, for example, what theologians call the Mosaic Covenant or the deal between Moses and God. And that one's clearly conditional because there's a whole long list of stipulations. You know, if you do this, I'll bless you. And if you do this, I'm going to discipline you. But in many cases, even beyond the Mosaic, for example, the Davidic, David's promises, they're completely unconditional. God just says, I'm going to make sure that you, David, have a descendant to reign upon the throne forever and ever, regardless of what you do. And that's a good thing, because we saw in David's life this summer, he did a lot of bad stuff. And if God wasn't true to his covenant, that promise would have failed. But the divine covenants are distinct from the human ones in that they are often unconditional. They come, and the greater says to the lesser, this is what I'm going to do. So through these biblical covenants, here's what happens then. Through biblical covenants, God has conveyed to humanity the meaning of human life and our salvation. Why are we here? How do we function? How do we operate in relationship to God? All of that is given to us in the covenants. And thus, the Bible is actually broken down into two covenants. The old covenant... And the New Covenant. The Old Testament and the New Testament. Testament is just another word for covenant. So you hear about things like last will and testament. 
Okay? It's just the agreement, the arrangement. The person who wrote it is saying, this is what I'm going to do. When I'm gone, this happens to my stuff. Here's the deal. In a similar fashion, the Bible is broken down and God, since he is the author, is writing it and saying, okay, here's the framework for this group at this point in time. Now here's the framework for this group at this point in time. And this is how you guys are going to relate and interact with me. So today we'll sort of walk through those covenants. We'll first look at the old covenant. And then we'll look at the new covenant. And then we'll look at the marriage covenant. And the point is, is not just to go through some theological exposition of a really cool thing that we found in the Bible. But it's to say, hey look, this is the way God operates. And if we're believers, if we really believe this stuff, we call the Bible, the gospel, the message of salvation, the reason God says we're here, then we need to sort of base what we do on what he does. Because he's the paradigm, he's the framework. It's not us or our cultural narrative or anything else, but it's him. So how does he work? He works like this, and therefore, as a result of how God interacts in his agreements, so too should we interact in ours. So we'll move then from old to new to marriage, and then what we'll see is consistent throughout all the covenants, including old, new, and should be marriage, is this is what a biblical covenant, this is what a biblical promise looks like. Here it is. A biblical covenant is based upon God's character. He himself, he who is, is the fundamental sort of objective way of measuring things. And then what we see is a real covenant also acknowledges who we are. You know, if it was just like, hey, I'm perfect and everything's going to go well, we would laugh. We would say, ha, that is not a real expectation or marriage. Things are going to be difficult. We know that we as human beings mess up all the time. We are sinful. We are frail. We can't accomplish perfection in and of ourselves. Therefore, a real covenant, a good covenant, is going to make, you know, some sort of stipulation for that. That's why in marriage covenants, they don't just say for better, for richer, for whatever. You know, they had the other part too. Because sometimes that's the majority. It's all the other stuff. The poor, the sick, etc. So, It starts with God, it acknowledges our reality, and then, given that goal, that target, acknowledging that reality, it says, no matter what, here we go. And it unconditionally commits. So it acknowledges God's character, it um, acknowledges our character, and then finally, at the bottom, it unconditionally commits. Now with that framework, I'm going to read to you the Mosaic Covenant, or Exodus 34, when God, Yahweh, is giving to Moses the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant law. And we're going to look and we're going to see that's exactly how it plays out. There's God's character, which is holy, righteous, true, good, just. And then there's the people's character, not so much. And then there's this unconditional, amazing promise or commitment at the end. So let's read Exodus chapter 34, uh, verses 1 through 9. And I want you to see this just as a paradigm of a covenant, and then we'll play it through all the other covenants. This is Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 1. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, verse 2, Be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai. 
and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone, just like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone, and then the Lord descended in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, here's what I'm like, here's my character. The Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping his love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses responded rightly, as we all should, and quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. He said, Now, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. Oh, because this is what we're like. We are a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and sin and take us as your inheritance. You could probably, if you wanted, take that and just make it a marriage covenant. You say, let us all strive to be like God. This is what he is. Faithful, forgiving, consistent, just, righteous in every way. And you know what? In reality, we know that our spouse and us are the opposite. We are stiff-necked, sinful, and we need his help. I think if there's anything the Old Testament teaches us, if you've, if you've read it, if you haven't, I encourage you to do so, is that people are sinful and fickle. You know, we mess up, we sin, we cannot keep God's perfect standards. And not only that, but it's arbitrary. What we do well one day, we do poorly the next, and on and on and on. You watch the people of the Old Testament and you see how many times they come out with blazingly good intentions and then only a few short moments later, boom, everything is awash again. It's up and down and up and down, completely fickle. Well, that must be just the people of the Old Testament, right? (laughs) By no means. That is us. That's human beings. Yet God is the exact opposite of that. He is faithful in every way, never goes back on his word, and is perfect and righteous and just in all that he does. In other words, if I were summing it up to my young children, I would say, people, yuck, and God, yay, (laughs) you know? We are just difficult. We fundamentally are. That's the way sin has made us. So it's a struggle. And we struggle and we are sorry and we mess up and we hope for something more. And the Old Testament constantly points that out to us. And, we, and if that were all it did, we would end up discouraged. But it does more. It does more than just point out. It also promises It does more than point out, it also promises. And here's what it promises in Jeremiah 31. This is the uh, promise of the new covenant. So there's the old covenant which points out, but there is a promise of the new covenant which will do more. And it says then in verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will... Remember their sin no more. 
So the prophets are kind of interesting to read because I just pulled out the tidbit, but if you, if you read the whole thing, they're always lambasting Israel for their failure to keep the covenant, and there's all these very specific commands that they're addressing, and it's a little bit confusing because they're long and poetic, and they're also like, okay, so is this the past, or is this the future, or is this the present, or what are they talking about here? It's beautiful poetry, but it's also complicated. What's happening in this verse is the prophet is establishing what's called a type. And a type is merely a pattern of something in the past that will be fulfilled in the future. Okay, so let me say that again. A type is a pattern of something in the past that will be fulfilled in the future. So when you take this whole thing and you sum it up, let me show you what the Old Testament is or the Old Covenant. Testament, covenant, same thing, the law. What happens is this. The Old Covenant looks like this. Here's a slide. The Old Covenant was instituted by God. You know, Moses didn't come to God and say, hey God, here's the terms on which you're going to relate to me. <laughs> right? That's important because we've got to remember that. We sometimes do. No, God says, Moses, here's the terms on which you will relate to me. God institutes it and then he ratifies it by sacrifice. He f- there is some ratification of the treaty. And in the case of the Bible, it is often, almost always, by sacrifice. Then, in this case, then after it's ratified, it's sealed. In this case, well, actually with Abram, it's sealed with circumcision. That's the first. And then it's remembered in the annual feast. You have all these festivals which are celebrating this or celebrating that. And at the end of the day, its goal is designed to lead people to the Messiah or to the Christ, the anointed one, the coming promised king, the deliverer. Okay, that's a cool exposition, Jeremy. How does that work? Well, look, as you play that forward to the New Testament, let's take our first paradigm. The new covenant is based upon God's character. Simplified, John 3.16. What does it say? What are the first few words of John 3.16? Go. Okay, so for God so loved the world, here's God's character. Here's what the new covenant is based upon. Not your perfection, not your desirability, but God's love. It's based on his character. The new covenant, the old covenant, both start with God's character. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only son. So it acknowledges your sinfulness, our sinfulness, my sinfulness. (laughs) God so loved the world that hey, they were perfect, didn't have to do anything. No, by no means. He had to give his only son for the sacrifice of our sins. Then he unconditionally commits himself. Why? Because whoever shall not perish but have everlasting life. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's my promise. You believe, boom, you get. And I'm not backing away from that at all. It's an unconditional promise. So God's character, our sinfulness, and the unconditional commitment. What's happening here is that the type, the model and paradigm of the past, has become a reality in the present. The type has been realized. The type has been fulfilled. So I'm going to skip one slide here, and this is what it says then of the new covenant. We just did the old. Look, here's what's happening in the new covenant. The new covenant is instituted by God or by Jesus, it is 
ratified by his sacrifice. This is the cup poured out for you, which is my blood, the new covenant given in my name. Ratified by sacrifice. It is sealed not by circumcision, but by his spirit. Is remembered not in Israel's annual feast, but instead in the, his feast, the Lord's Supper. And it is fulfilled, it's no longer predicted or promised, but it's fulfilled in him. The shadow and type of this thing has become a reality. And thus, Hebrews tells us like this, when Christ appeared, this is the summary from uh, the book of Hebrews, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means, here's the sacrifice, of the blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing this unconditional promise of eternal redemption. For if it worked in the Old Testament like this, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled person with the ashes of heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, remember that's the purpose of marriage, sanctification, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise, the unconditional promise of the internal inheritance since death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. So in other words, what he's saying is this. Hey, church, There's a new structure. There's a new backbone. There's a new system that is in place. At one point you had this system which required repetitive things to be done over and over again. But now you have something so much better that the way you're going to interact with God is straight through Jesus. You don't have to go through a priest anymore. Instead, you get to walk behind the veil to meet with God himself. To a Jewish person, this is nearly blasphemy. That's why only Moses can go up on the the mountain because anyone else is not invited. (laughs) But now under the new covenant, you are invited and there's no threat of punishment because God has taken it on your behalf. Here is a whole new way and a beautiful way to see our relationship with God. So, how does this relate to marriage? The answer is this. The marriage covenant takes on the same character as the divine covenant. How you relate to your spouse should be the same way that God relates to you. Recently, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal entitled, Cheap Sex and the Decline of Marriage. In it, this author argues that marriage is on the decrease because basically um, men can take advantage of the benefits of marriage without having to enter into one. That plays in entirely, I think, to our cultural narrative, which if you go to the movie theater or you turn on your television set, will quickly tell you, whether you realize it or not, that marriage, this is what the TV will say, is for you and your happiness. Marriage was designed for your satisfaction. It does not tell you that human beings are bad, But instead, it tells you they are intrinsically good. There is good inside of us. You just have to find it and eke it out and everything will be okay. Like what Mike and Julie were saying this morning. Hey, we thought we were okay. It's all good. We're good people. The Bible tells us something very different though. 
And in this context, in a cultural narrative that we live, it tells us, hey, look, you know, it's about you and you're good. Therefore, if it's not good, whose fault is it? The other person, absolutely. So get out. We live in an instant um, return exchange policy society. Look, if you don't like it, just send it back. We'll give you your money or back. Can I do this in my marriage? Isn't this the way things work? Because if it's about me and my fulfillment and I'm good and something's not right, then therefore it must be them. It only makes sense. This is a lie from the pit of hell. The Bible tells us the exact opposite. It says, none of us are righteous. We're all sinful. There's no excuse. And if there's something wrong, more than likely it's your fault. (laughs) Now, don't get me wrong. I'm I'm making a point. If your spouse is abusing you, that's clearly wrong. Okay, so I, I don't want this to be pushed too far. But what I'm saying is that we are all sinful. And ultimately, it is only God who is perfect. Therefore, marriage cannot be what our TVs or our television sets are telling us. Instead, a real marriage is just like the other covenants we saw. It is something that is based on God's character. It acknowledges human sinfulness and frailty. It says this will not be picture perfect. This will be hard. (laughs) This will not always be fun. But even though that is the case, we will, like God, unconditionally commit. We know our spouse is going to mess up. I know I'm going to have to ask for forgiveness. I know this is not going to go well all the time. It may be rosy on the movies, but it is not in reality. And you know what? Here's a little secret. I want to tell you this just for fun. I'm stepping off script here. Man, some of those marriage conference advertisements stink. <laughs> I mean, don't they? They show the couple holding hands going, <laughs> yeah, like, Through the forest, if you come to our marriage conference, you will be skipping out of here in joy and laughter. (laughs) Marriage is hard. I want to see like this dark picture like Dunkirk or Battle of the Bulge or something where stuff just flying and you're throwing it back and it's going and, and man, you don't know if there's any way out. But when you take cover, you do so together. You hold each other's hand. And you're in the pit, and it stinks, and you're muddy, and you're dirty, but you are bonded. That's a real picture of marriage. I don't see those on our bulletins that we advertise. I think that's the way it really actually is. Look, marriage looks like this. If it's like the divine covenant that, that the Bible says it is, then marriage is entirely different. People come and ask me to you know, marry them, and I want to marry them. But there's so many things that go into making a good marriage. And I see these situations and I say, really, if you're headed for a cliff, I don't want to push you off it. (laughs) I want to be the guy that moves you in the right direction. If I want to say by the power invested in me by state of Michigan and by God, I feel like I've got a responsibility to keep. And so I have a marital policy and it's strict and it's tough and the bar is high, but I'd rather have you quit now than quit later. <laughs> you know? Whew. So here's what I think marriage, what the Bible says it is. Based on those other things, marriage is a covenant. It's instituted by God. Okay, so it starts there. If you don't believe in God, I don't know which way you're headed other than hell. And your marriage can be one and then your eternity can be one too. But maybe you should start with God. Marriage is instituted by God. And then it's ratified by sacrifice. (laughs) 
You want to make it work? Well, get ready to sacrifice. Most of the guys are already focused in on, hey, number three, right? Here comes the union. Well, sacrifice came first, so get ready. That's part of saving for a ring and everything else. It just prepares you for the rest. <laughs> you know? Here you go. You got to sacrifice, man. Then it is ratified by the union. And just like all the other covenants, it's remembered annually in celebrations like your anniversary in a very similar way. But ultimately, as we said last week, the purpose of the marriage, because God instituted it, is to lead us to Christ. It's for sanctification. And that's what blows away our cultural paradigm that says it's for my own fulfillment, for my own happiness. It's not to spoil our wives. It's not to be fulfilled as a man. But it's to become more like Jesus. And sometimes that's just plain hard. It's a stretch. It's difficult. But it's good. Here is a marriage covenant that is not for the purpose of happiness, but instead for your holiness. That's why, as we saw last week, Ephesians talks both of Christ and the church and of the husband and the wife In the same way. He says, here's the purpose. That he, the husband, that he, Jesus, might sanctify her, the spouse, the church. By the washing of water with the word. So that he might present her to himself. Very different than what she was when he found her. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. Look, a real marriage looks different. A real covenant looks different it's a little bit like the girl scout model i think is you leave something better having left it than when you found it here's what i think a good covenant looks like based upon god's character acknowledging what we really are unconditionally committing to one another here are some real life everyday terms that i think you can apply to your marriage Uh, if i'm just going to read through these you can download it later online But here's a list that I think would describe. Okay, Jeremy, you've just said it's, you know, like God. You've said that we're sinful. You've said that it's unconditional. And here's how it was in the old and the new and now. So what does that look like in real life? Here it is. A covenantal marriage, a biblical marriage, is a place where people actually enjoy being together. They want to be with each other. It's not a relationship that you avoid. It's one that you run to. If you're running from God, that means there's sin in your life. If you're running from your spouse, it could mean the same thing. It is a relationship that grows sweeter over time. It is one in which joy permeates and jokes follow. It is one in which problems are real, but forgiveness is greater. Where openness is encouraged... And feelings are shared. Where wounds are washed rather than ignored, even if it means painful scrubbing. Where no one ever threatens to quit, it is a place where you listen more and speak less. And even though a conversation may be difficult, it always ends with, regardless, I am committed to you and our relationship no matter what. The self dies, the other thrives. Both hearts are turned towards God and each makes the other better. It is a team effort 
that capitalizes on the strengths and compensates for the weaknesses of the other. It walks the road together. It holds hands during fair and foul weather. It braces during the storms. It's the type of relationship that I want my children to emulate. It tickles. It touches. It listens. It loves. It encourages. It comforts. It consoles. It is the type of husband that I want my daughter to marry. Is she seeing that in the way I love her mother? Can I say marry a man like this? And I will be so glad you did. It is the wife I want for my sons. It is the light years from the spineless indifference and apathy of our modern portrayal of men and their marriages. It has clear leadership committed to the convictions and courageous follow-through regardless of the potential pitfalls. It rejects the cultural narrative and it stands against the tide and it rushes to save the other whenever they might be floundering. It is patient, it is kind, it does not boast, is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices at the truth. It doesn't pay back, it doesn't hold back, It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. This is a biblical covenantal marriage. And it's not easy. And you look at me now and you say, well, okay, then Pastor Jeremy, how do I get there? (laughs) It's a pretty good picture you just painted. What do I do? I think that your marriage is just like your relationship with God. And it works in the same way. And as complicated as we try to make it, at the end of the day, it's actually quite simple. How do I improve my relationship with my spouse? Well, I improve my relationship with God. How do I get there with God? Here's two very, very, very simple yet extremely difficult ways. Number one, you slow down. Number two, you spend time. Slow down and spend time. How do I get there with my spouse? Hey, guess what? Slow down and spend time. Slow down and spend time. Now, I I think I know who I'm talking to. At least I do in and of myself. And those two things are very difficult. I'm a doer. I'm a type A, overachieving, educated, upper middle class, whatever, just like the rest of us, (laughs) you know? I'm the guy that says, hey, I want to do my best in everything and I'm not going to quit till it's A+. Plus, right? And it bothers me if one little thing's out of place. Okay. But at the end of the day, God is calling me to slow down and do less and process more. Instead of reading another book and adding more to the to-do list or the pile, we need to sit and process our own thoughts. Hey, I read a book on that. Why don't you talk to God about that? Don't read another book. Stop and talk. You don't need another book on evangelism. You just have to try it. (laughs) You you really don't. You know Jesus, and you can tell somebody else about him. Do less, process more. Take quiet time to sit and think. Hey, if you don't, you know what happens. You stay awake at night and do it anyways. (laughs) 
So you might as well take some time during the day. That way you can sleep at night. It's okay to sit on the couch and stare out the window and see what the Lord brings to mind. In fact, that might be a good thing. That might be the best thing for you. Don't start another project. Don't go out. Stay home. Stay in. Do less and process more. You don't need another meeting. You don't need another activity. You don't need another event. You need Jesus. Why don't you spend some time with Him? Do less. Process more. You're not, your mind needs it, your body needs it, your soul needs it, your spirits need it. And when you refresh like that, your relationships will explode. <laughs> You'll come back not worn out and grumpy and all upset and ready to blow up at the first misstep. But you'll be refreshed and happy and engaged and thoughtful and prayerful so that you can truly overcome evil with good. That's the way to move forward. So slow down, do less, process more. Spend time. How do we spend time? Well, in our relationship with God, it is to pray. And I would suggest to you that our, in our relationship with our spouse, it's to pray as well. You can spend time praying together. You don't have to be a theologian. There are things you want and desire. Ask God. There are things that you appreciate. Tell God. There are things that you need help on. Ask for it. You can do that together. Don't pretend like it's not there. And I realize not every time is a great time, but make time. Pray. Spend time. Casual conversation. You want to feel better? I guarantee you. I promise you. If you praise God, you will feel better. And the more you praise Him, the better you'll feel. The more you praise God, the better you will feel. You want to feel better? Praise God. It seems counterintuitive. Um, I'm suffering. You really want me to praise Him? Yes! <laughs> this is the day the Lord has made. You know when they sang that? On the day of battle. When the wives were going up and discovering their husbands littered in the field. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice. We don't care what the devil tells us. We're going to rejoice. <laughs> devil told me not to because he wants to steal my joy. I'm going to say, no thanks. God told me to. I will. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice. You want to feel better? Praise God. Try doing it together. It gets really good. Praise God and then confess. Look, there are obstacles to your relationship with God. There are obstacles to your relationship with each other. Confess. Don't pretend you're perfect. God knows you're not and your spouse does too. God knows you better than anybody, and your spouse is next. So if there's anybody who knows we mess up, it's number one, God, and number two, our spouse. <laughs> Trying to fool them is a fool's game. You might as well admit it. Now, you may not be ready. It may take some time, and it may play right into one of your worst and greatest fears in your most sensitive areas. But when you come forward with that, boy, that's the time to grow. Confess. Lead by humility. The benefits are enormous. We know, psychologists and others who study the human system know, confession is good for the soul. It eases your burdens. It lightens your load. It opens your eyes. It clears the way. It guarantees God's favor. It guarantees it. 
God is such a God, remember his character? He is forgiving and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If you're confessing, you are getting a blessing. (laughs) You will. Confessing means blessing. Confess. Marriage. It's a covenant. It's a backbone. It's a system that God has designed for us to relate with him and for us to relate with one another. Both the marital union, as we saw last week, and the marital covenant, as we see this week, are the bones or the structure that God has designed for human beings to interact with Him and with others. Ultimately, it is based on His character. It acknowledges our reality. And it unconditionally commits. Marriage, in other words, is designed... To mirror the gospel. People should look at your marriage. And they should see Jesus. Because there is unconditional commitment. Love and forgiveness. Instituted by God. Ratified by sacrifice. Sealed by a union. Remembered in the annual feast. And designed to lead us to Christ. That's a marriage. That's it. So slow down. Spend time. And whatever you do, I don't care what you do, but whatever you do, don't let anything crowd out the covenant. If you break that, everything falls apart. But if you keep that strong, you're all good. Whatever you do, don't crowd out the covenant. Father, we thank you for your covenant to us, your unconditional love, 